Anybody notice that life seems to get more and more complicated? Like every day we live, it seems more and more complex. I don't know if you've ever heard of this term before, but um, researchers, sociologists, say that Americans suffer from affluenza. Now, you can't get an affluenza shot at your local Walgreens. But affluenza means that we have too much. Too much stuff, too much time, too much activities, too many scheduled events. But one of the things they say that we have too much of is choices. Now, I want to talk to the husbands for just a minute, okay? Any of you husbands ever had this scenario where your wife says to you, maybe you're on your way home in the car, or maybe you're sitting around on a lazy Saturday afternoon, and she says, I need you to just pick up one thing from the store. Anybody, a husband, anybody ever do that? Okay. Some of you like, I pick up everything. I'm the one that shops. Well, then switch it around, all right? And they say to you, I just need this one thing. And you get to the store and there are 45 varieties of that one thing. Right? I see you nodding, Paul. I got you. All right, we're here. Isn't it amazing the choices we have? I heard recently, I'm going to give you some statistics in just a minute I find interesting, but I heard this was a couple of years ago, maybe three or four years ago, that Hamburger Helper, y'all know Hamburger Helper, right? Mom's friend for generations. Hamburger Helper, which by the way, anybody, I've always been a little creeped out by the hand. Anybody, uh, thank you. You, you know what I'm okay. All right, hamburger. That doesn't have anything to do with what I'm talking about. Hamburger Helper realized that their sales were going down, and they didn't understand it because they thought they had come up with varieties for anybody that wanted anything. And what they discovered is people got to the Hamburger Helper aisle, and there were too many choices, so they didn't buy any of them because they didn't know which ones to buy. Just to give you an idea of the choices I'm talking about, when you go to your local grocery store, this is uh, last year or two, they found out that most common grocery stores or like Walmarts or Targets have 27 varieties of Crest toothpaste. Not 27 varieties of toothpaste, but of Crest toothpaste. Campbell's condensed soups, 53 varieties. I'm sure that's counting if you, you know, just go get some cream of chicken. Well, is that reduced fat, healthy request, regular fat, I want to, you know, die, cream of chicken or regular? (laughs) Tropicana Pure Premium Orange Juice, eight sizes from 8 to 128 ounces. Breyers Vanilla Ice Cream, natural, French, half the fat, no sugar added, extra creamy, homemade, lactose-free, or Carb Smart. Cheerios. Y'all remember Cheerios, right? Now you can get Cheerios and Original, Honey Nut, Honey Nut Medley Crunch, Apple Cinnamon, Banana Nut, Frosted, Multigrain, Multigrain Peanut Butter, Dolce de Leche, Cinnamon Burst, and Chocolate. Chocolate Cheerios are Cocoa Puffs for adults, by the way. <laughs> and they are Delicious. Tide, liquid detergent. You got original scent. Original scent plus Febreze. Plus Febreze Sport. 
free and gentle, plus bleach alternative, cold water, clean breeze, mountain spring, plus with downy and with Actolife. And that's not to say that if you don't have one of those H-E washers, you've got to get the one with the H-E stamp on it, or it'll, I don't know, blow the washer up or something. And then head and shoulder shampoo. Active sport, old spice, deep clean, hair endurance. Refresh, extra strength for men, citrus breeze, ocean lift, dry scalp care with almond oil, classic clean, sensitive scalp care, itchy scalp with eucalyptus, apple scented, damage rescue, and just regular old extra strength. In 2014, Consumer Reports reported that 36% of shoppers are so overwhelmed by the information they have to process in buying a buying decision that most of them end up not doing anything. It's not a big deal when you can't decide between chocolate. Cheerios and dolce de leche. Cheerios, right? But what about those decisions that are big? What about those life-altering moments or even the day-by-day process of deciding? What do you do? How do you know what God is asking you to do? How do you know God's will for your life? What, What does God intend for you to do? Like I said, it really doesn't matter, I don't think, which of the Crest toothpastes you choose. But if we mess up the big things in life, then we pay for it, regret it, live with it, never get over it. So how do you know what God's calling you to do? We're going to walk through Acts for a minute. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Um, Acts chapter 20. We're going to get there, but I'm going to walk you through a couple of things because here's the truth. I I want to tell you from the outset that I'm not going to give you a three-point step or three-step process on how to figure this out in any situation. I am going to give you a couple of principles, two words really, at the end of what we're talking about and, and to help us kind of figure this out. But I want you to see that it doesn't happen the same way all the time. Now, we could talk about the ways that God speaks to us to give us information. We could talk about his word and we'll do that. We could talk about prayer. We could talk about other people. We could talk about uh, being a part of a local body of believers where the Bible is being taught, of being a part of a community group or the Sunday school where the Bible is being taught. We could talk about how God uses circumstances and extenuating circumstances and that all of that is to lead us to a particular point. But what I want you to do is not figure out or worry about so much all of the particulars, I I want to focus on two words at the end of this sermon that are going to help us all make sure we're in line with what God wants us to do. Because the truth is, there are times in my life, and I'm sure there are times in your life, when making big decisions or small decisions, and we want to do what God intends for us to do, and, and it feels like I'm standing in front of that hamburger helper aisle, and I don't have a clue the difference between what's happening or which one I should choose. And as a result, sometimes I find myself paralyzed by overthinking what God wants me to do. We're going to start in... Uh, I told you to go ahead and go to Acts chapter 20. We'll get there, I promise. But in Acts 
chapter 13. I just want you to see some of Paul's journey here before we get to another one. In Acts 13, 1, it says, Now, they were in a church in Antioch, prophets and teachers. Remember, Antioch is where they were first called Christians. All this will be up on the screen. There was Barnabas, there was Simeon, who was called Niger, there was Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, which, that's kind of a remarkable thing, and Paul. Look at verse 2 and 3. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. We're going to do the opposite of that next week. We're going to worship the Lord and eat. All right. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, Paul, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and set them off. We're going to leave that up there for a minute because, because I read that and I think that's cool. Isn't that really cool? Holy Spirit spoke. They're praying. They're fasting. They're worshiping. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit speaks and says, go. But here's what I want to know. How? Was it a voice from heaven? Were they in the midst of doing everything they were doing? And all of a sudden, loud from heaven, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul. Was it one of the members saying, hey, listen, I I just feel like we're supposed to set apart Barnabas and Saul? Was it in their prayer time? They all just kind of looked at each other and they were like, this is what we need to do. I want to know. Sometimes, and I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read the Bible, I I know God gives us exactly what we need and he gives us a fullness of what we need. But sometimes I want to say, look, could you just kind of fill in some details here? In fact, kind of being who I am, I I sometimes wish he, he would fill in all the details. And give us an exact description of everything that happened. For instance, in Acts 16. We're going to put this up on the screen too. I think it's in the next one. This is Paul on another journey. It says, as they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word to Asia. Again, I say, How? How were they forbidden to speak the word? Could they not talk? Did they get up to speak one Sunday morning? And the dream of some of you in the congregation that the pastor gets up to speak and his voice is suddenly gone. I can't speak. Were there circumstances? Is this one of the things where they were trying to go and every time they tried to go it seemed that a roadblock came in their way and so they couldn't go? Was it a a vision? Was it a speaking? Was something? What what happened for them to be forbidden by the Holy Spirit? It goes on to say this. So passing by Mesia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. Well, now that gives us a little detail, right? He's sleeping. And a vision appeared. But the question I have there is, How do you know it's a vision from the Lord? I've had some dreams. Anybody here had some dreams? You ever had dreams? Some of you like, I've never had a dream in my life. I mean, how many of you have ever had a dream? You know what I've discovered? Sometimes when I eat food I shouldn't eat later than I should eat it, my dreams are a little crazy. Ever experienced that? You get a bad taco about 11 o'clock at night and all of a sudden you got some crazy stuff going on. Anybody else have dreams where people you haven't thought of in 20 years suddenly show up in your dreams? Right? So how do you know? How did Paul know that at night there's this vision? Is this a dream or is this he's fully awake and there's a vision? How, how do you know it's of the Lord or how do you know if it's bad tacos? He says to him, come on over to Macedonia and help us. He tells us that immediately when he had seen the vision, 
we, that's Luke who wrote it talking, he was with Paul at the time, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Think about this for a minute. Paul has a dream, a vision, and there's a man in Macedonia saying, come help us. And they get up immediately and they change everything about their itinerary and they say, God called us to preach to them. How do you know? Look at Acts chapter 20. Starting in verse 20. He says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time. From the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Now, we'll stop there for a second because I want you to get the scene. Paul is saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders. And he is saying goodbye in a way that is goodbye. Not like, see you later or I'll be back or till next time or catch you on the flip side. None of that. This is goodbye. And he's saying goodbye to them. He recounts it. And I just want you to get this for a moment. We've looked at Paul's calling, how they set them aside and they sent them out. We looked at Paul going to Macedonia. We've looked at Paul making these decisions. And what I want you to first understand is Paul followed the Lord's will and still he had tears and trials. He was humbled. The Jews were after it, but you get the idea that, that Paul was doing what God had called him to do, right? He still had tears and trials. And so this is, this is bonus material. This is extra. Just because things don't go right after you make a decision doesn't mean that you didn't do what God called you to do. You got that? Anybody ever made a decision you were pretty confident was from the Lord and things went crazy after that? Right? Just because that happened doesn't mean you didn't follow the Lord. It doesn't guarantee anywhere in Scripture that you make the right decision with God and your life becomes beautiful. Blessed. Best life now. Paul goes on to say this. Hey, I didn't shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says this. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem. And there's the phrase there that just wrecks me. Constrained by the Spirit. Required by the Spirit. Pulled by the Spirit. And he says this at the end of it. We're going to leave this slide up for a little bit because I just want you to, to dwell on that thought of constrained by the Spirit for a minute. Not knowing what will happen to me there except this. This is what I do know. Now, think about this. I, I don't know what's going to happen when I get to Jerusalem except that the Holy Spirit tells me that I'm going to be imprisoned and be afflicted. That's it. So how did Paul know he was constrained by the Spirit? Let me tell you something. As I've read the book of Acts, there's no Jerusalem man saying, come over here. There's no dream or vision. There's no, the Spirit came down in this moment that you see testified to in Scripture. There was just this underlying determination that he is supposed to go to Jerusalem. And can I tell you, for me, 
Paul's decision to go to Jerusalem is much more impressive than his response to a vision or his response to the Spirit descending in a worship service among other believers. This is a determination. In fact, in the next chapter, you don't have to look there now, but in the next chapter, the people come to him and they say, don't go. In fact, what they say is, we feel compelled by the Holy Spirit to tell you not to go. And so you have two people on two different sides. You've got Paul, I am constrained by the Holy Spirit to go. You've got these elders over here on the other side saying, we feel it is responsible to tell you by the Holy Spirit not to go. Well, is the Holy Spirit telling two different things? So how do we know? How do we know what it is we're supposed to do? Can I tell you a, a question to ask instead of what's God's will for my life? That, that's not necessarily a bad question, but I want to give you a better one. This isn't going to be anywhere, so if you want to write this down, you can. Because this is the way Paul lived, and it's the way I think we're supposed to live, and it helps to shape the two words I'm going to give you. Here, here's the question to ask, not what's God's will for my life. Here's the best question to ask. What is the best use of my life for the spread of the gospel among the nations? When we're thinking about God's will, when we're thinking about God's uh, desire for us, we need to ask the question, how do I fit in best to declaring the gospel to the nations? What's my role? What's my responsibility? What's my task? Where do I fit in that? It's a different question than what's God's will for my life. Because let me tell you the honest answer. When most people ask what's God's will for my life, what they mean is who am I supposed to marry? Where am I supposed to work? What's my job supposed to be like? Where are we supposed to live? Where are we supposed to go to church? Those are important questions. I'm not saying they're not. But when you ask the question, where am I supposed to be to be most effective for the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ among the nations, it takes on a different thing than just which House should I buy? Now, now, we're not naive enough to know that determining which house to buy does have an impact on your impact on the nations because it impacts how you're able to give and how you're able to live and where you are and where God has planted you. But the focus changes. And the sense that I get from Paul is he consistently asks over and over and over again, God, where do you want me now to be best used for the spread of your gospel among the nations? Not where did you want me last week? Not where do you want me next year? Where do you want me now? Can I also tell you this in Scripture? God rarely gives you the full plan before asking you to obey. In fact, I don't know anywhere in Scripture he gives the full plan and detail to anybody before you ask him to obey. He just asks you to obey. Think about Abram, right? Called and God says, I need you to leave where you are and go where I'll show you. Well, where is that? I'll show you. When will you show me? I'll show you. Think about David. You're going to be king. Well, when? Well, it'll be a little while. You're going to wander around in caves and be almost killed by the king several times. And you'll have to prove yourself over and over again. Well, where do you want me to go? Just take a step today. What's the best use of my life for the spread of the gospel among the nations? Here's what I want to tell you. 
There's no surefire, four-step approach to figuring out God's will in every situation for your life. But I can tell you two words that will help immensely. And they come straight from the life of Paul. They come straight from what we see in this passage of Scripture. And the first word is a word that is common in church, but it's common to hear, not so common to see. And it's the word surrender. The truth is, most of us, when we ask God the question, what's your will for my life? What do you want me to do in this situation? You're really saying, God, I've got about three acceptable things I could do here, and I'm okay with two of them. Which one of those two do you want me to do? Now, relationship with the Lord is never supposed to work that way. Everything in our lives has to be surrendered to Christ. I'm holding something right here, and I don't know that you can see that. Some of you on the front row can see that. What's that, Bill? It's a check. Well, it's not big. It ain't got any numbers in it. It's the right size, same size, similar size, but it's blank. You realize when you give someone a blank check, you are entrusting yourself to them. Amen? A signed blank check. What the Lord asks from you and from me is a signed Blank check. Where we say to him, wherever, whenever, however, for whatever, I'm willing to go. It doesn't matter what you call me to do. I'm willing to do it because you have called and I am surrendering my life to you. This week I had an amazing privilege. I um, was asked to be a part of a pastor's roundtable. In uh, Atlanta, Georgia, at the North American Mission Board, it was a group of Tennessee pastors, and our our leader was the pastor of First Baptist Orlando, David Uth, who is the guy that followed Jim Henry. Some of you know Jim Henry. Some of you know him pretty well. David Uth has been there for several years now, and the connection that we also have with David Uth is when we go to Brazil, um, their church, and he specifically leads a team the week after we're there. So same hotel, same place. We had never met till about a month ago. But I sat down, we had this conversation, there are about uh, 18 pastors from Tennessee there, we're just having conversations, and, and David shares, in the midst of that story, shares the story uh, of somebody that was in his church last week. And you've probably heard this story, I mentioned she was at the convention, but Pastor Saeed, you know Pastor Saeed, do you know that name? He's the pastor over in Iran that's been imprisoned for sharing the gospel, has been there for a long, long time. His wife was in first Orlando a week or two ago and they interviewed her for the time during the sermon and they were talking to her he said first of all just finding out their story was interesting he said you hear all these stories from what's going on but she was given us first-hand accounts of being able to talk to him or people that know him and she said that that you'll see on social media and you'll see on the news that they keep moving him They said the reason they keep moving him is because whenever he lands in a prison, he starts converting prisoners. And they move him because he is starting churches in the prisons they are putting him in. They said, in fact, she said, some of you may have seen a month ago, or month I remember seeing this on my feet, that they moved him to the worst prison there with ISIS soldiers that were imprisoned as well, right down the cell block. He's been converting them. And so they have now moved him out of the worst prison there because he continues to preach the gospel. They told the story of his conversion, which is just fascinating. He was actually 
in the midst of determining and being trained by two different terrorist organizations in his youth. And as he was share, determining that, he, he said that he, his whole hang-up about Christianity was that Jesus said he was coming soon and it would not have been soon. And he said one night while he was sleeping, he had a dream. And in the dream, he saw Jesus. And he, he, he went, woke up and he went back to sleep and he had another dream and he saw Jesus. And he, he woke up and he went back to sleep. And a third time he saw Jesus. And the third time he saw Jesus, Jesus looked at him and he said, Preach my gospel, I am coming soon. Jesus turned around and walked away. And so Pastor Saeed started to follow Jesus. He married his wife and they had these conversations. And she told Pastor Uth about an incident in their lives where both of them together, from a Republican Guard soldier, had a gun put to their heads. As the gun was placed on their heads, the soldier said, if you deny Christ and convert to Islam, declare that Allah is God right now, I will spare your life. If not, I'm going to pull the trigger. And Pastor Saeed looked at the man and didn't say a word. And the man said, don't you realize that if you don't declare Allah is God here right now, that you are dead. And Pastor Saeed looked at him and said, I am dead already. I have died to myself. So it doesn't matter what you do to me. Through the intervention of God, his life was saved at that moment. But that phrase, I'm dead Already. That's what surrender is. That it doesn't matter anymore. That your life has been taken by Christ. And so whatever He wants you to do, wherever He wants you to do it, however He wants you to do it, you just do. You surrender to Him. People say, well, that's extraordinary life. That's, a, that's an extraordinary Christian. The truth is, that is a normal Christian life. To die to self. If you anyone were to come after me, the word anyone means anyone. If anyone is to come after me, he is to deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Complete and total surrender. Now, I know for some people that seems radical or strange, but it's the truth is, as the American church, we have done a very poor job of talking about, of calling ourselves to, and of obeying complete surrender to God. We follow God with stipulations. We follow God with conditions. We say, God, I'll follow you as long as, or if, or as, as <laughs> until. But if you want to know God's will for your life, He's not going to reveal it to you until you're in a position of complete surrender. And here's the second word, surrender. Paul surrendered, didn't he? What did Paul say was going to happen when he went to Jerusalem? Well, he says, I don't know, but it's at least going to include what? Prison, persecution, beating. I don't know what else. In fact, he tells, them, he tells the Ephesian elders, I'll probably not see you again. I think Paul was convinced he was going to die. Surrender. And secondly, the second word is abide. Abide. In John 
Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. You remain in me and I remain in you. We are to abide in him. In fact, do you know the reason I believe God doesn't most of the time send us a vision or a lightning bolt from heaven or tablets from the sky or sky writing to tell us what to do? It's because the goal for our lives is not for God to give us a game plan of every step we are to take. The goal of our lives is Him. Complete and utter devotion to Him. And you know what I've discovered in my life in those moments when I have truly sought the Lord, asking for direction, asking for understanding, action, asking for the next step in my walk with Him? Do you know that those are the moments in my life when I have been closest to Him, when I have followed Him the most, when I have understood my relationship with Him best? And so it's better not to have a lightning bolt vision from heaven. It's better to discover it. Through abiding. Well, how do you abide? You say, that's a good word. How do you abide? Well, there's a few things. You, you, you stay in God's Word. You read God's Word on a regular basis. You regularly put yourself in reading what He has written to us. You pray. You spend time praying for the God to show you. But not just the God to show you what the will is, but the God to show you Him. I, I want to know Christ. I, I want to know Him. Not His will. I want to know him. You, you discover, you abide by, by fasting, by setting aside things of this earth, things that you desire, things that you think you need in order to spend time focused on Him. If you're at a place where you desperately do need to know the next step in your life, the decision that needs to be made, spend some time in God's Word, spend some time praying, spend some time fasting. You obey. You, you do what you already know what to do. Can, can I tell you that most of God's will for your life isn't something you have to discover? He's told us to do it. Uh, we're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. We, we're to uh, take the gospel to, to people that are around us and to the world around us. Let me ask you a question. Two or three weeks ago, I stood on this stage, I guess about a month ago, when I drew pictures with spray paint. And we talked about three circles and the circle of influence in our lives. Let me just ask you a real honest and bold question. Have any of you shared that with anybody? Maybe not that, but have you shared your faith with anybody? Because if not, how can you expect God to give you more of what you're supposed to do when you're not even obeying what you already know you're supposed to do? A couple of weeks ago, we talked about sin in our lives, and we talked about wanting to be set free from sin. Some of you have a sin that you want to be set free from. Have you asked God, have you been in the process over the last couple of weeks of asking God to set you free, or did that just be a sermon and you're gone? It's over. Well, that was good. Woo. Brother Lyle stepped on my toes today. We study His Word. We pray. We, we seek His face, and we obey what we already know to do. And as you do that, you abide in Him. Paul said that he was constrained, required to do this thing of going to Jerusalem. People want to know God's will for their life. Can I I tell you this? God's will for your life is for you to impact the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, how that works out specifically in your case is different than anybody else in here, but that's his will. 
And so the question you need to ask is not what's God's will, but how do I, where I am, with what I have left, with what I have, impact the world for Jesus? Let's pray together.